This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. I use Podbean to host Tale of the Manticore. Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter concludes the fight between the Ankeg colony and the Thangarians, who are aided by the PCs. In the end, the colony is obliterated. With the queen herself destroyed, there is no fear that it will ever come back. The cost to Thangar was steep, however. Thirteen of the final warband gave their lives in the effort and, added to the dead from previous attempts to exterminate the threat, over sixty of Thangar's best soldiers are no more. Eridine almost joined that unlucky number. She was reduced to a single hit point before the battle ended, a near tragedy that was not lost on any of her companions, least of all Gyrios. But as fate seems so eager to provide, as soon as one conflict is resolved, another one emerges. We visit the True Strike family, two brothers and a sister, who are enjoying a duty usually given to higher-ranking Thangarians as a kind of reward. Nothing much really ever happens at the Eastern Watchtower. In fact, it is so peaceful that spending the hours idly cloud-gazing and smoking pipes passes for sentry duty. The siblings cannot know that on this day, something terrible is coming. Sometime in the morning, a dragon, well, let us speak plainly, THE dragon, Neronumenex, is spotted flying towards Thangar. Deep underground, Harl and the others have no idea what is about to take place. Chapter 60, Part 1, Day 71, Morning. Party Status I've ruled that no natural healing has occurred, therefore hit point totals are as follows. Harl, 21 of 34. Gyrios, 22 of 33. Eridine, 7 of 18, having been healed by Gyrios for 6 points. 
Umura, 23 of 23. Spells available. Umura has memorized Charm Person, Levitate, and Knock. Gyrios has prayed for Hold Person and Bless, having prayed for and already used two new Cure Light Wounds spells, one each on Garrett Magger and Captain Tarig. Neither the revenge on the Queen Ankeg nor Gyrios's healing ministrations salved the hurt felt by the Sons of the Mountain. Truth hung in the air like a stench. Their population had been decimated, their martial might all but destroyed. It would be many years before Thangar would rise again. As for the companions, fatigue struck them as soon as the battle was complete and the immediate needs of the wounded had been addressed. They had yet to sleep, even though up on the surface the sun had begun to rise. Adrenaline, it seemed, had kept them awake through the entire night. Captain Tarek, in a voice that was now horribly ragged and wheezing, and even rivaled Aradine's tones for the injury it communicated, ordered them to rest for a few hours in the redoubt outside the Ankeg tunnels, back in the mines where they had initially met. The companions had not argued with him. They were all on the verge of dropping from exhaustion and had no choice but to accept the respite. Meanwhile, the surviving Thangarians went about the somber and heartbreaking job of transporting the dead, many of whom were in pieces that needed to be collected together. They also killed the Ankeg larvae and resuscitated the four dwarves who had been selected by the queen to populate her hatchery. Amongst these grim-faced dwarves, there was no talk. A tacit understanding passed between them that lamentation could wait. For now, there was work to be done. One consolation to be found along with the misery was the discovery of a rich vein of silver in the Queen's Cavern. It was a huge deposit, almost equal to the one in their shrine. This one did not run in a forked line as the other, but formed shapelessly on the cavern wall, as though some divinity had hurled a blob of molten ore against the wall eons ago. Tam Wheelgrinder, one of the few Thangarian soldiers to survive the night, stared at it contemplatively. Grunwag is watching us from below, he said tonelessly. This is our reward. Not worth the price, flared Garrett, frowning at the bandaged stump that had been his hand. I can almost see images in the ore. Bah! Get away with your images, grunted Garrett. Come on, there's work to be done. He indicated the bodies at his feet that needed to be carried away. Tam continued to stare at the silver ore for a few moments longer. He would have sworn he had seen a shape in the ore. It had been something terrifying, something that belonged in a nightmare. He looked again, but somehow it was gone. He could no longer find the edges that described the wings, nor the branching silver veins that illustrated the fearsome teeth. Now it was nothing more than a random mass of curves and speckles that winked in the lantern light. Maybe I just imagined it, Tam said hopefully, trying to believe his own words. No lollygagging, said Garrett. Gruenmog has better things to do than hide pictures in the rocks. Tam blinked and looked up again at the cavern wall, cocking his head to one side. Come on, Tam. I can't do it on my own. Garrett held up his bloody bandage. Sure, Garrett. Sure.
Microphones and Monsters is a Cthulhu D&D actual play with a balance of horror, mystery, and comedy. Our story begins in a 1920s Magitech noir setting. We follow the story of Alistair. That power is very much something that I need, and I don't want that to stop. Victor. I don't think I want to help you. And Julian. It's burning. What happened here can't see the light of day. As they come face to face with Eldritch Horrors. <laughs> I don't think you could ever stop me. And try not to fall into madness. Go to microphonesandmonsters.com or listen wherever podcasts are found. Chapter 60, Part 2, Day 71, Early Afternoon. Party Status. The party status is unchanged. The hardest to move via the chain diving well had been the body of Chief Boehner. He hadn't been the largest dwarf among them, but he wore a suit of full plate that weighed at least 50 pounds on its own. The old chief must have been immensely strong to move and fight, carrying so much, both literally and figuratively, on his shoulders. Ironically, and perhaps in more ways than one, the Augerstone family crest was a bear, and the chief's pauldrons and great helm were all fashioned to look like the head of a grizzly. The helmet had been dented in two places, and there was a horizontal rend across the middle of the visor where an NKEG's mandibles had struck it. Almost as difficult to move as the chief had been Tarek's sling hitch. The captain had trouble walking and even breathing. It had been necessary to take frequent rests along the way as they had exited the Ankeg tunnels and passed through the lower mines. The trip up the chain diving well had been extremely painful for him. By now it was clear that the lost eye was not the worst of his injuries. He must have inhaled or ingested some of the Queen Ankeg's acid, for his throat and lungs seemed to have sustained serious damage. You could hear it plainly in his ruined voice and the way he wheezed constantly. Although the operation of transporting everyone up through the chain diving well had been laborious, it had not actually taken that long. It had been faster by far than moving the warband up the rope in the Ankeg's food room where the Shriekers grew. This was in part because the dwarves had the mechanized winch to aid them, but sadly, it was also because there were far fewer of them. Including the four companions, the party now numbered 17. Only nine Thangarians had survived the battle and destruction of the Queen Ankeg, but four had been rescued from the hatchery. None of these dwarves was in very good condition, either physically or psychologically, but they were alive. They moved with the rest of the group in a zombie-like trance, allowing themselves to be guided and helped along by their brethren. One of them was known to the companions. Bardane Hornbeard was here. Along with his two brothers, he had rescued them not so long ago. In fact, less than a month had passed since their brush with death on the mountainside. It seemed to have happened so very far in the past. If Bardane recognized them, he didn't show it, but then, like the other rescued dwarves, he showed no expression at all, save for one of mild shock. The other survivors were not known to the companions, though one of them turned out to have a famous name, and his rescue seemed to be the source of some hope and even joy among the survivors. Roland Daz Augerstone was the late chief's grandson, he was in no better condition than the other rescued dwarves, but his effect on the group's morale was noticeable, nonetheless. Is Chief Boehner's son still alive? Umura asked Harl. No, sadly. I asked the same to Magger, and he told me Roland Daz's father was slain in a fight with some hobgoblins years ago, Harl replied. Umura's upper lip curled at the word hobgoblins, and Harl noticed. Apparently he cut down five of them on his own before they overcame him. Does that make Roland Daz the new chief? No. Dwarven leadership does not primarily honor blood rights the way the humans does, Harl told her. 
It's a little complicated. It sounds complicated, agreed Umora with a faint and short-lived grin. Mm. The laws are old, overly numerous, with new ones laid over top the previous. All of it is open to interpretation. I don't think any dwarf can honestly say they fully understand how it all works, but luckily the overriding idea is that the eldest dwarf in the hold leads, so as long as they are fit to do so and have not devoted themselves to a life of service to Grunmog as a solemn, the choice is usually fairly clear to all. Well, that part seems simple enough. Have you ever heard of a dwarf avoiding political obligation by taking up the Iron Mask? Harl gave Umora a sidelong glance, impressed. Famously, yes, that has occurred a few times. Have I mentioned lately that we'll make a dwarf of you yet, Umora? Umora laughed through her nose. <laughs> do you know who the eldest in Thangar is, Harl? Do you know who will replace Augerstone? I do not, Harl replied. But I imagine we'll find out soon after we return. There will be a funeral and a ceremony. Then it will all be announced. Harl seemed to struggle with the thought for a moment before he added, I would not want that responsibility. They put conversation aside for the rest of the walk and, after a time, came to the huge, mouth-shaped entrance to the mine. It was less imposing on the way out than it had been on the way in. They passed under the stone teeth and descended the stairs that had been carved to resemble Varen Elamor's beard. Although they were still underground, Gyrios felt like the spiritual weight of the mountain, always pressing down upon them, lightened considerably. It put him in a pleasant mood, but that turned out to be short-lived because by the time they reached the Undermule stalls, something definitely seemed amiss. It was hard to say what was out of place until there was a sound up ahead that did not belong down here. The members of their group now began to exchange worried looks. After they passed the creature pens, on the approach to the mushroom fields, they saw it. A host of people. Hundreds of them. Here, among the funnel-headed fungi and fat toadstools, their fear-tinged babble was out of place and alarming. There were so many voices, some of them clearly expressing misery and pain, and, as the companions drew nearer, they saw all the faces. The young and the old were here, dwarves of all walks of life. Some of them were embracing. Others whispered to each other with their faces distorted by worry. One did not have to speak dwarvish to know that something monumental had occurred. Many of the dwarves looked disheveled, as though they had just tumbled out of bed. Some were obviously injured, and almost all of them were filthy. Their clothes and skin were smudged with soot, and a smell of smoke clung to them. Harl scanned the crowd of faces. Most paid him no heed, but one suddenly noticed and broke away from the others to approach him. It was one of the two Heflin bards who had played for them the night before. Willa was her name, he remembered. Her harp and her sister were nowhere to be seen. Willa was barefoot and dressed in a linen night frock. Once it had been white, but now it was covered in soot. The bard's eyes were wild. When they met Harl's, he could see a deep, deep hurt in them. She had been crying. This was cleared by the twin tracks of clean-washed skin on her cheeks. The rest of her face was like her frock, dark with soot. Willa's hair stood up in a way that would have been comical if the circumstances were otherwise. She stepped in front of him, swallowed hard, and threw her arms out wide. It's... it's terrible she stammered. We're all going to die. Up there, outside, it's... It's the end of the world! Dramatis Personae Nera Numenax, The Crimson Queen 
Perhaps you have already guessed that when Sov Merriman blew Black Nail's horn, the worm, Neranuminax, was summoned. But there was no teleportation, no magical gate involved. The dragon was simply called, compelled to return from whatever faraway land she had currently called home. It had taken time, days actually, for her to reach the eye in the fire. Just imagine her anger when she finally reached the base of the Cloudspur Mountain and found nobody waiting for her. After making sure that there really was no one around, by incinerating a few acres of the surrounding area, Neranuminax flew to the top of the Cloudspur, to the ruins of the Egojin. This is where her last battle with the dwarves had taken place centuries ago. This is where the hated Blacknail had knocked out one of her teeth with a lucky blow. Of course, she had found that place deserted, too. The magic had summoned her to face an enemy, but there was no enemy to face. Whether it was magic that compelled her to stay, or whether she chose to, supercharged by an incalculable lust for revenge, it makes no difference. Neranuminax claimed the Egojin and made it her new home. Her former place of humiliation would be the throne from which she would rule over this part of Merith, at least until she decided to destroy it all. From her new roost among the clouds, Neranuminax surveyed the Kazmirioth. She took off once per day and flew in a great circle before returning to her new home. Whenever she saw anything alive, she killed it, and this entertained her for a short time, but within only a few days, she grew restless. She started flying in even larger concentric circles around the Egojin, looking for something upon which to vent her wrath. On day 71, she found Thangar. She had no idea that one of her three former tormentors, Varen Elamor, had founded the place, but she recognized dwarven architecture the moment she saw the Eastern Tower. A mixture of ecstasy and malice filled her belly at the same time that the fires began to kindle inside her. She swooped directly at the tower, throwing the weight of her body against it so that it cracked like a bone. And when a fissure opened in the wall, she released hellfire through it. Fire filled the tunnel-shaped structure, vaporizing everything inside and gouting flares perpendicularly out through the arrow slits. Neranuminax let the tower crash to the ground and looked greedily at the citadel in the near distance. Today, there would be satisfaction. She would make it rain dwarven blood. She would bathe in it. That would be a start. Between the Lines. Neranuminax's attack on Thangar was devastating, but instead of satisfying her burning rage, it only fanned the flames. The assault was, needless to say, a bloodbath, striking the citadel by surprise from the air, while the vast majority of Thangar's military might was away underground, and many of them were already dead. The dragon struck Thangar unchallenged. She tore great holes in the palace, pushed her face into them, and blew out roiling gouts of fire that rushed down every hallway and corridor faster and deadlier than any invading army could have done. She stomped businesses to rubble and plucked dwarves from the streets or from their ruined homes, tossing them up and snapping them out of the air with her jaws. It really did rain dwarven blood, and the Crimson Queen wore a bib of gore before those who were able to run reached the safety of the mountain's deep interior. When I dreamt it up back in episode 37, I didn't make a map of Thangar. I just had an abstract idea of the place in my head and that was good enough. I knew the palace marked the center of the citadel, with the White Hall standing beside it. A short distance away was the marketplace, half in, half out of the mountainside. 
The Three Candles Inn and the Dead Troll Tavern were both under the open sky. In order to find out what and who survived Nerenumenax's fury, I need to come up with some kind of dice-rolling mechanic. As always, I'll keep it simple. One roll will determine just how extensive the damage is, then further rolls will be made for named characters to see if they were killed, injured, or if they numbered among the lucky ones who got away. The first roll will be on a d20. This roll, plus 50, will determine the percentage of structural damage to buildings that stand on the mountainside. The roll. Ooh, 15. Ouch, that's a lot. 15 plus 50 means that 65% of buildings have been destroyed. The front half of the palace is collapsed and much of the interior burned to ash. Obviously, the eastern tower is completely destroyed. Numerous homes and businesses are damaged beyond repair. How about the various personalities? A roll on a percentage die to determine who survived. With a 65% destruction, I'll say that each character needs a 35 or under on a d100 to survive. Let's begin with the minor characters and work up towards the major ones. The proprietor of the Three Candles Inn, he of the rotten teeth and underdeveloped sense of humor. A 17. He lives. He gets away with just minor burns. How about Garrett Magger's wife? Does she survive the attack? Wow, a three. Yes, she's lucky too. She gets out completely unscathed. Her business is damaged, as is the Three Candles Inn, but the owners live, hopefully one day to rebuild. Next up is Holgner Ringlock. He would have been in the palace at the time of the attack. His role? A 50. Ringlock is not so lucky. He avoids being crushed by the falling masonry, only to be burned to death in the inferno that quickly follows the collapse. Many, many others, mostly servants, choke to death in the smoke that fills the palace after the fires have done their work. With the collapsed walls, many exits are no longer usable, and many dwarves are trapped until they suffocate. By the way, there are some people and places who survive because of their location. Lior of Lior's Lost Books and Curiosities makes it. She and her business were fairly deep inside the mountain. The same is true for the tailor, armorer, and provisioner the companions once visited. Grunemug's shrine is likewise untouched, being not only a good distance from the citadel, but fully inside the mountain. What about Raydell and Grumblebelly? Hmm. Raydella is a ranger who only works for the dwarves on occasion, and then really only for his friend, is not even present in Thangar. He's off where he belongs, in the foothills to the north. He's got such keen eyesight, I wonder if he saw a shape in the sky. Now Grumblebelly is in Thangar. He's been spending time with the Master Artificer, and her workshop is located deep inside the mountain. Still, it's not certain he would have been there when the dragon attacked. I'll just say that there is a 1 in 6 chance that he was unlucky enough to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. A 1 on the die will indicate that he was. The roll. A 4. Grumblebelly survives the attack. The name of the dirge in Old Dwarven was Aemon Aelium Eza, roughly translated the call back into the earth. It was believed it meant of Merith that, upon death, the spirit transcended to the Grey Halls, where a kind of second life began. The passing of a loved one was to be mourned, but also celebrated, and so funerals were bittersweet occasions, which acknowledged the end of life on the prime material plane, and the start of a new journey on another. As their ancestors had been such a warlike people, the ancient notion persisted that if a dwarf died in combat, they would have the opportunity to bid farewell to their loved ones before entering the Grey Halls. 
This final farewell was not consciously experienced by the living, so whether or not such an exchange really took place was impossible to verify. However, the belief was more or less universal and uncontested amongst all dwarven people in every part of Merith. In short, it was generally taken for granted that a death in combat was a good death. That explained what happened to the soul, but the body of the deceased was altogether a different matter. For this, lofty ideals gave way to the inequities of the real world, where wealth and power mattered. Depending on one's status in life, one of two things might happen to a dwarf's body when they passed away. If they were part of the elite class, including artificers, academics, warriors of renown, and of course rulers and their families, then their body was taken to the necropolis. Every dwarven hold had a necropolis, always located in the same place and always marked by the same stone disc, featuring a grinning skull surrounded by insects and mushrooms. You may remember that this ubiquitous kind of sculpture was the only artistic representation of reality one might find in a shrine. You may also recall that a double of it would also be found in a dwarven chief's throne room. The stone discs were not mere markers, they were portals. Take for example the one at the entrance to Blacknail's vault, for the vault was, after all, a kind of small-scale necropolis. That one was a magical portal that teleported people inside. Most shrines and throne rooms had portal discs that rolled away to the side, exposing a tunnel beyond that led to the necropolis. The necropoli of both Dwarvar and Thangar were equipped with such mechanical portals. Once anointed and prayed for, the bodies of the upper caste would be carried into and laid to rest inside the necropolis, where they would remain for eternity, undisturbed. It was not commonly known exactly what it was like inside a necropolis, because, by ancient law, only the dead and the solemns were allowed to enter, and neither of these two groups ever spoke a word. If Gruenmog had noticed that our PCs had entered Blacknail's vault, technically a necropolis, it seems that he did not especially mind. Perhaps it was only tradition and superstition that upheld that particular ancient law. Because those of the upper caste were often quite wealthy, their cadavers were typically dressed in the finest raiment, which oftentimes was their armor, available to the family before being removed to the shrine. Many took a significant heirloom or a weapon with them into their final place of rest within the necropolis. So it was noteworthy that while Chief Augerstone was clad in his now polished, though still dented and rent silver armor with its bare-headed pauldron and helmet, his weapon, a mighty double-headed axe with yet more ursine figures etched on the flats of each blade, was absent. Happy, happy new year, everyone, and thank you so much for listening. For your support across the board, I'm very grateful. If you've been thinking about supporting the show and haven't done so yet, there are four ways to do so. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can purchase my rules ultralight RPG called One Shot in the Dark for a buck fifty on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Here's another one of your generous reviews. This one is on Apple Podcasts by a user named Emmer the Victorious. Emmer the Victorious writes, I really enjoy listening to this podcast. The episodes are well paced. It's produced so neatly and with great sound. Nice find, and I'm glad to keep listening. Thanks for taking the time to write that review, Emmer the Victorious. I'm glad that you found the podcast, and I'm grateful to you for writing this. Hopefully, your review will help other people find the show, too. My gratitude also goes to my cast of voice actors. Joining the show in the role of Tam Wheelgrinder is Logar the Barbarian from the Wobblies and Wizards podcast. Also, returning to the show, I'd like to welcome back Hodag RPG, playing Garrett Magger, and Lauren Hottinger of the Intelligence Check podcast, playing Willa Sweetgrass. 
You can reach me at Manticore Tale on Twitter or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Few things inspire you to create your own campaign more than hearing a bunch of friends enjoying theirs. But where do you start? Here at Undercommon Taste, we discuss tabletop gaming and homebrew content, as well as diving into the concepts of world building, content creation, game balance, and various DM tips. We focus mainly on 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, but most of our advice can be taken into any system. We dive into the existing lore of older editions, discussing the impact of bringing old, sometimes forgotten lore, into the current edition to bring your campaign worlds to life. We also host various game and game systems creators to get a sample of up-and-coming projects and to get their take on how to bring something unexpected and new to the table. So join us for Undercommon Taste, where we stir the pot and lick the spoon. Available wherever you find your podcasts.